Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Well, one story dominated the European political landscape in 2018, and that, of course, was the UK's impending departure from the European Union. There will be no getting away from Brexit in the days and weeks ahead, but we're going to focus on something different today with our Europe editor, Patrick Smith, who joins me now in studio. Um, Paddy, the topic we're going to discuss today, is, it's not entirely unrelated to Brexit, um, but we were going to have a look at the threat posed to EU norms of liberal democracy by populist forces in, in, in many member states, and many of these forces indeed are now in government. Um, which of these movements, which of these member states do you think poses the, the, the biggest headache for Brussels right now? Well, of course, uh, firstly, it is it is right to say that they are a part of the Brexit phenomenon in, the, in that they reflect uh, similar movements of uh, nationalist, anti-immigrant movements, um, which have taken root in across the European Union in, in different forms. And in, in the most dramatic development, of course, during the year was the Italian government, uh, which was taken over by the the, the far right, uh, the um, La Liga, which is run by Matteo Salvini, who's a very prominent force now in, in European as well as Italian politics. And growing in popularity in Italy, it seems, even since they went into government. Uh, yeah, polling has suggested that, that he's up in the ratings. And what is uh, worrying a lot of European uh, politicians is that he uh, is seen as somebody who might be able to intervene in the European elections, which are coming up in May, uh, as, as a sort of figurehead for a, a, a far-right alliance across, across the European Union. Now, he's, he's leaving it all a bit late in terms of putting together a movement. I mean, it would be a question of bringing together the, the parties that are already there uh, and some of them might get a, a boost from his presence on at the head of, of the ticket. Um, but Salvini is has, has uh, also... Uh, seen quite a serious setback in the last uh, few days of the of the of the year. In that, uh, the there was a lot of fanfare when the Italian government announced its uh, new budget, uh, which was clearly um, in breach of European Union rules. And the Commission said, we're not prepared to accept this. We're going to take out proceedings under what's called the excessive deficit procedures, which could mean major fines to the Italian government and, and other, other, uh, other penalties if you don't change the shape of your budget because you're, you're planning for a really massive deficit, which means, in effect, that the 131% of GDP debt that Italy is carrying at the moment, which is massive, uh, would not be reduced. In fact, it would probably be increased. In the in the uh, last week before Christmas, the Commission, having pressured uh, the apparently reluctant Italian government, uh, succeeded in getting a deal where the the Italian government backed off and uh, announced new a new budget, which broadly speaking does conform to the EU's stability rules. So a major. Victory for you know putting manners on on one of these um, uh, far right uh, governments. Um, maybe just to look at some of the other member states and maybe individually, and then we can kind of come back to the get an overview of the situation. Um, Hungary, a lot of concerns in Hungary about you know the clampdowns there on media freedom and particularly the undermining of judicial independence. And as you've reported previously, that there's already an, an Article 7 process underway. Just remind us what the Article 7 process is, what this is, and, and where does that stand now? The Article 7 process is um, a provision in the Lisbon Treaty uh, under which member states can, um, if they are in persistent breach of, of the rule of law, um, 
they can suffer the loss of uh, political rights and other rights in, in, in the European Union. It's not very specific about what rights that they would lose, but ultimately they could lose their votes, their voting rights if the exhaustive procedure ends up with them being found guilty. Now, the problem with Article 7 is that it requires uh, unanimity in the Council of Ministers, uh, and the polls have said they will protect the, the Hungarians. The Hungarians have said they will protect the polls. So there is no possibility of the final decisive um, vote uh, finding them guilty. But the very fact that they're inside the Article 7 pr process is uh, politically humiliating and quite difficult for, for the government. But what is happening in, in Poland uh, and Hungary is that at the same time, the European Commission has filed a number of infringement proceedings in the European Court of Justice. And the first of these uh, recently uh, ordered the Polish government to withdraw its uh, new controversial uh, reform of the court system. Uh, basically, they were retiring uh, Supreme Court judges early and, and stuffing the court, attempting to stuff the court with their own supporters. Uh, this is Law and Justice, the Conservative Party that runs Poland. Now, the first uh, of these uh, court rulings uh, was an interim judgment. In other words, the full case has still got to be heard. But the court said, uh, this is too serious to wait, and we're ordering you now to suspend the process. And the, and the polls have, have been forced to say, OK, we will suspend uh, this process. So again, we see another arm of the European institutions beginning to put manners on one of these, uh, one of these states. And it is encouraging, I suppose, that Poland did actually abide by that European Court of Justice injunction as it essentially it was. I mean, they are still playing by the rules of the game then, aren't they? Yeah, it, it's, it would be very serious indeed if they didn't. Uh, it, it's, uh, the, the Court of Justice um, has really strong powers and a refusal by a member state to abide by the decisions of the Court of Justice would put it, uh, put it in flagrant breach of its uh, union uh, obligations. And would, in some, some people would say, be tantamount to saying, well, we're actually heading out of the European Union. We're not prepared to abide by the rules of the game. Uh, but I think the polls understand. The polls, polls don't want that. Polish uh, opinion polling suggests that the, still a vast majority of polls want to remain inside the European Union. They don't sympathise with the British Brexit movement. They do sympathise with some of the demands for reform. Uh, but uh, again, the same is true of, of Hungary, where uh, repeatedly uh, polls are showing that the Hungarians by majority want to stay in, uh, although they don't like the Brussels diktat, which they see. Similarly with Italy, uh, the Italian polls show massive support for staying in the European Union, although when polling is done on the euro, there is a, a doubt in the minds of, of Italian voters, and it's not clear if, if it did go to a referendum uh, whether or not they would with, withdraw. The, Salvini has pulled back from uh, from recommending a, ref, um, a referendum on, on, the, on the euro. Um, we, we were discussing there that maybe the legal avenues open to the European Union and, and um, in terms of Poland and Hungary in particular. There, there are also um, political avenues open, aren't there, to... to uh, the leaders of other member states, and what I'm thinking of in particular is, uh, say, the recent meeting of the European People's Party, and Viktor Orban was there, rubbing shoulders with, you know, Angela Merkel and and all of the other 
uh, sort of centre-right party leaders. Um, that's not a good look. No, really, is it, it? it isn't. And, and there's been a lot of criticism both within and outside the EPP for their, their willingness to continue tolerating uh, the, the presence there of um, uh, Orban, uh, who's basically sticking two fingers up to them. Uh, it's also true that the EPP can, continues, the, can, continues to house the party run by Mr Berlusconi in Italy. Uh, Berlusconi was never as right-wing as, uh, as the uh, um, uh, Hungarians, the Fidesz, uh, party. Fidesz party, but he is uh, at least as corrupt as the Hungarian uh, party, which is now referred to quite widely by political scientists, not just as uh, an illiberal democracy, which is Orbán's favourite term, but a kleptocracy, because there's very serious concerns about about money going astray. And one of the uh, other measures that have been taken by the European Union in the course of the budget discussions that are happening at the moment for the 2020-27 uh, uh, budget uh, is new regulations which will allow the um, Union to withhold money uh, if there is evidence that EU money is going astray. Uh, in and So it's a, a, what is called conditionality of, of structural funding. And that is very much uh, uh, aimed at uh, Hungary, uh, where there are strong suspicions that uh, um, Mr Orban and his colleagues have been feathering their own nest at the European taxpayers' expense. And with the EPP, do you think, and of course Leo Varadkar, the, the Taoiseach, as uh, a member of that group, or attends, attends um, those meetings in that capacity, would the EPP ever consider expelling Orban, do you think? The EPP has considered it, but uh, it, privately it hasn't actually had a motion down. And it has been held back by, among others, uh, Manfred Weber, who is the German leader of the, the, the um, EPP uh, in the European Parliament, because he is very aware that his hopes to get a majority in the European Parliament or to get it to, to be the largest group in the European Parliament after the elections does depend to some extent on a large block of Hungarian votes. And uh, so he's been very reluctant uh, to, to have them expelled. And uh, others, I think the Irish probably would say, yes, they should be expelled. And, and others have been more forthright and said, no, no, we, this is not tolerable. This is not what we're about. And it was very interesting at the uh, EPP Congress, uh, which I attended uh, recently in Helsinki, uh, leaders were very outspoken uh, in defence of the rule of law and defence of, of democratic rights. Uh, and they, they, their comments were very clearly targeted at Orban, who was sitting there in, in their midst. But they haven't done the logical thing, which is to expel expel them. I wanted to ask you as well, Paddy, about Austria, which is an interesting case, because there were a lot of concerns when the Freedom Party, a far-right party, won 26% of the vote in the 2017 election there and won a place in the government. But Austria had the EU presidency for the second half of 2018. And uh, am I wrong? But it seemed to be kind of quite a smoothly well-run, you know, presidency. It was quite smoothly, uh, smoothly run. Uh, and uh, Kurz, who is the leader of, of the Austrian uh, branch of the EPP, who isn't a member of, of, of the Freedom Party, um, did, did quite a good job. But there are a number of areas where uh, the Austrians were obstructive. 
um, and didn't move things forward. And most notably on the migration dossier, because one of the critical tasks that the European Union had set itself last summer was to get agreement on a big package of, of migration uh, and asylum reforms. Uh, at the core of that, and the most difficult part of that, is what's called the Dublin Regulation, which sets the um, rules for what you do when uh, uh, asylum seekers land on your on your shore. And the rule is that you are supposed to look after them where they land first. The um, idea of the Germans and of others, and particularly of the Italians and, and, and other frontline states like the Greeks, is that there should be a demonstration of solidarity by other member states. In other words, if you have legitimate uh, asylum seekers, they can't be expected all to stay in Italy. So other member states are supposed to share them. And there's a formula based on, on population, which was being allocated. Now, this was blocked by a number of countries, including Poland, Hungary, and indeed Austria, which is very strongly opposed to any form of solidarity of, of this kind. And um, when Kurtz took over the, the Austrian presidency, he was responsible for managing this group of five issues of migration policy issues. And, and basically, he said from the start, I am very happy to deal with uh, issues to do with external migration, things like the Operation Sophia, rescuing people in the, in the uh, Mediterranean or uh, setting up camps in, in uh, Af North African countries or a number of different other, other measures to do with migration, but external. He said, uh, but I don't think there's much point in, in doing anything with the internal aspect, i.e. the Dublin regulation, because there's no agreement on it. So he didn't even bother putting it on the agenda. He didn't raise it with other, other governments during the course of the presidency. And come the December summit, uh, Dublin was no further advanced in terms of, of, of its, its, its amendment than, than it had been before. So the, the, there was a real effect, if you like, from the right-wing anti-immigrant uh, posture of the of the Austrian government on on the agenda of the, of the European Union and people were uh, were are very browned off with that. Okay, and, and and actually speaking then of the presidency, we move we move from Austria to Romania, which um, there's a lot of political instability there right now, and maybe some concerns about what kind of um, presidency Romania will offer to the European Union. What do you anticipate there? I, I anticipate that the Romanians will insist that they are able to run the presidency, but that it's going to be slightly chaotic. Uh, and uh, it means in, it, it's very difficult to show how that affects the union, because what happens is that dossiers in, in a whole lot of different areas are simply not advanced. They're not capable of brokering deals, moving the agenda forward. So I think basically it's a presidency when everything more or less uh, is likely to stand still. Uh, there had been suggestions that maybe the, the Romanians who haven't been in the Union for all that long and it's their first presidency, you know, maybe they weren't ready for it. And the Finns actually stepped forward and said, we are ready to bring forward our presidency by six months if that would help. Uh, needless to say, the Romanians didn't take terribly kindly to that and, and it didn't go anywhere. How important is the presidency in terms of the functioning of the of the EU? It it's it is all about, and this is it's behind the scenes. It's all about managing the agenda, making sure things go forward, brokering deals. Uh, the the presidency chairs most of the the important councils. Now, it it used to chair the Foreign Affairs Council, and it used to chair the uh, the Euro group, the the, the ECOFIN. Uh, that has now been. 
uh, handed over to permanent chairs. So uh, Federica Mogherini, who's the union's High Commissioner for Foreign Policy, chairs the Foreign Affairs Council, and she drives the agenda there, and, and much, you know, quite successfully. Um, and similarly, to, there's a guy called Centeno, who is the chair of the Eurogroup, on a permanent basis. He keeps that moving, uh, that moving forward. So it matters less, but it still is important because there's an awful lot of stuff in the pipeline which people are trying to get through, trying to get to legislative sta- stages, but they, they become stalled if you have an inefficient uh, uh, presidency. Now, there's another member state that maybe deserves a mention, or maybe not. You, you can tell us your view on it, but and that's Spain, where a far-right party, Vox, has made recently made a, a big electoral breakthrough in Andalusia. And there are concerns as well, not so much about the independence of the judiciary there, but but certainly about the impartiality of the judiciary. And we've had a lot of controversial cases of artists and, and rappers being jailed for acts of dissent and. Catalan political leaders in jail for over a year awaiting trial and so on. Are there any concerns about Spain in Brussels? Um, the Spanish issue um, before Vox was, uh, uh, that was repeatedly mentioned in, in, in Brussels, was, was, Cat- was Catalonia. And the Commission uh, did everything it could possibly do to insist that uh, it, this is an internal Spanish matter and it didn't want to intervene, it didn't want to criticise anybody. It, it said that while the evidence, uh, there was no evidence of a partial uh, judiciary uh, and therefore there was not rule of law concerns raised. Now, this is because uh, particularly uh, secessionist movements are... Um, a matter of concern to a number of, of European governments. So they are very keen that Spain would be allowed to handle it on its own. And the, the idea of the European Union inter- interfering in, in, these, in these, these issues is very much anathema. But in principle, uh, it, it, could, it could end up uh, being a matter for infringement proceedings or Article 7. But it's not, doesn't. Most people believe that it won't happen; that that's not not as likely. The other the other case that I should should mention of the sort of ripple effects from from the rise of populism is the fall just the other day of the Belgian government because <clears throat> it fell a uh, coalition government, uh, including uh, a parties from the Francophone um, Wallonia and uh, Flemish uh, parties. Um, was made up of liberal and centrist groups, but also of a far-right uh, Flemish party called the NVA. And the NVA decided, uh, uh, more or less on the tail of, of the anti-immigrant movements that have been happening throughout Europe, that it was going to um, raise its profile by uh, objecting to a UN global compact on uh, migration, which was passed uh, a couple of, of Mondays ago in, in Marrakesh. Um, Belgian government was supporting it enthusiastically, uh, but the NVA said this was too much, it was too friendly to, to immigrants, and they were going to pull out. And since then, um, Charles Michel, who's the Prime Minister in Belgium, has found it impossible to put together a working working majority, and we, we now really don't have a Belgian government. Uh, it's not clear whether, whether, whether we'll be just we're left without a government, which Belgium has done before, or we will end up bringing forward the, the May uh, European elections. But it's, it's an interesting part of the same ripple effect from, of the uh, anti-immigrant nationalist populist movement throughout Europe, uh, having washed up in, in Belgium uh, as it has everywhere else now. 
You mentioned there um, European elections, um, European Parliament elections coming up this year. To what extent will these be seen as a kind of a battle between establishment forces and, and these upstart uh, movements, if you like? Uh, it they they will certainly be very important, and um, it it's not clear whether they will they will enter these elections on a, on a uh, in a on a common platform, uh, in which case you you will see uh, you you will just see a national fight between you know the Front National in France and and the the Macronites. Um, in other countries, you'll see similarly nationally based uh, fights. Um, it's. It's going to be a, a very difficult for election to predict because the other big phenomenon of the rise, the arising, the rise of, of, of populism that brought uh, is the decline uh, to virtually non-existence of the socialist parties throughout Europe. Social democracy has been crushed. Ireland is a classic case, back down with seven, only seven seats. Some people say it's, it can't recover from that. And, the uh, party, yeah. The, the Labour Party, uh, specifically, yeah. But that, that has been true in France, in, in, in Germany, in uh, a number of other, in, in Italy indeed, in a number of other countries. The social democracy has been pushed very firmly to one side. Now, they were the big uh, component in the last European elections, uh, and they will be running again, but nobody thinks that they can do well, which means a huge tranche of votes are free uh, for possible... Um, captured by the by the far right and, and, and the populists uh, and you could see a European Parliament in which there's a very large block of, of uh, populists and we're not specifically talking about brexit today but we don't know what exactly is going to happen over the next few weeks in Britain but certainly still due to leave the Union um, on the 29th of March is that story going to play into this kind of populist agenda um, as well this year in any way? I think it it is is part of the narrative of all of these these groups that the Brits have been hard done by that they are being repressed by uh, a, a thoughtless and autocratic uh, Brussels, uh, and that is the same narrative in in many of these which many of the, these populists are are playing to, largely I have to say ignorant and uh, wrong. But it's it's nevertheless powerful, and it's very difficult to respond to. It's it's a sort of, it's like in in um, previous Irish referendums. In in many ways, the argument for no was much easier to make uh, than the argument for yes, because you could say anything you like, and uh, it was very difficult for the for the yes campaign to to, to respond, uh, always on the defensive, always on the on the back foot. And the, the fear is that this campaign will be the same. Now, the European leaders have responded by pushing a number of, of initiatives at European level, which include, among other things, a digital tax, which uh, Macron in particular sees as a, as a real vote winner, showing people that, that uh, governments are really concerned about the uh, uh, non-taxation of the dig digital giants. And this will be something that he'll be able to waive uh, <coughs> at the electorate. Unfortunately, little old Ireland is doing its best to make sure that he can't do that. Is there an outcome to the Brexit process that will, a partic any particular outcome that will more favour, if you like, the uh, uh, populist agenda? I'm thinking, for example, if a second vote was was to be called in in Britain, that will fuel the the, the voices or fuel the the idea that uh, you can't, uh, there's no, no democracy in in Europe. You can't, um, if you get it wrong the first time, you'll be forced to vote the second time. Uh, I think. 
broadly speaking, the the, the narrative is, is developed, if you like, and and that won't change things one way or, or 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 another. I don't think that would play particularly into it. There, different countries have different traditions about about referendums. Some other countries, Ireland indeed, uh, is regularly votes uh, many times until the people get it right. Paddy, thanks for that. We look forward to many more chats in 2019. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.